Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 167 for March 11th, 2013. My guest today is Claire Crawford Mason. She is uh, one of the producers of the landmark 1980 documentary that aired on NBC that introduced Dr. W. Edwards Deming to uh, America and to a large extent the Western world. That show was called If Japan Can Do It, Why Can't We? And so, you know, Claire met Dr. Deming back in 1979 and uh, has really tirelessly carried on spreading Dr. Deming's uh, message and teachings. Uh, Claire and her husband, Bob, produced uh, the Deming Library a series of videos, lots of interviews um, with Dr. Deming. I've learned a lot from those. And they also, uh, probably five, six years ago, produced uh, a, a PBS documentary called Good News, How Hospitals Heal Themselves. And there's a companion book uh, called The Nun and the Bureaucrat that talks about the great um, lean improvement efforts that took place with Dr. Rick Shannon in, uh, in, in Pittsburgh. Dr. Shannon's been a guest on my podcast, The Sisters St. Mary Health System, talking about lean and systems thinking and Toyota-based methods and how um, that's been good in healthcare. So I'm thrilled to be able to finally have a chance to interview Claire. I met her back in 2007 or so, and I have kept in touch and I've always enjoyed chatting with her and finally had a chance to get something down in a recording to be able to share with you here on the podcast. So for more information on this episode and some notes and links, you can go to leanblog.org slash 167. Well, I'm really thrilled to have today uh, Claire Crawford Mason as my guest on the podcast. Thanks for taking time to talk today, Claire. Delighted to be here. So I was wondering if you could start off by introducing yourself and your career for the audience and, and how you came to meet Dr. Deming. Well, um, I describe myself now as a recovering journalist. <laughs> and um, I was, uh, you know, a regular, uh, your typical uh, Washington journalist uh, back in the 1970s. I covered the White House from late Kennedy through early Ronald Reagan. And uh, I eventually was a senior producer for NBC as well as uh, I was one of the, I'm trying to make up to the world for my other job, which was I was one of the founding editors of People, uh, which was a uh, yeah. which was a, a different magazine in the beginning. We reported real news and not just celebrity <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But um, anyway, so uh, I was at NBC, and so in 1979, uh, the president of NBC had the idea of doing a documentary which was tentatively titled, uh, Whatever Happened to Good Old uh, Yankee Ingenuity? And what had happened, is, if you can remember back then, was that uh, the, Jap the Japanese cars and uh, uh, electronic goods were knocking Americans off the market. They right. were much they were much better and they were much less expensive. And uh, so we were going to try to investigate just what this is all about. And so um, the dean of the American University Business School, uh, a man named Herbert Streiner, who had been following all of this for many, many years, suggested we go talk to this, how can I describe it, this elderly statistical mm -hmm. professor from uh uh, NYU, and he lived in uh, Washington, and uh, so I called up and uh, to make an appointment, and his schedule was completely clear, and um, I was told uh, to go to his basement door <laughs> to mm -hmm. interview him, 
And so I uh, went to the basement door to interview him, and then this very courtly older man uh, dressed in a suit came came up and let me in. And the basement was sort of, I've described it as, looked like it was either, it was not a recreation room. It was full of unopened mail, maybe from World War II, and many on file things. And so we began our interview, and it went really terribly awful. <laughs> and I, every time I would uh, ask him a question or something, I'd say, so-and-so says, and he would shriek, how could they know? How could they know? <laughs> and uh, uh, it was, I, I was stunned. I really didn't know what to do. I, he would try to explain things to me, and I thought he was must, must be speaking in statistics or something I didn't understand. So finally, after about two hours, I, uh, he showed me, I thought this had been a mistake, and then he showed me a magazine, uh, which was Quality Progress, with his picture on the cover, and he showed me a medal that he said the Emperor of Japan had given him for the most, being a most sacred treasure. And so then I said to him, I said, well, what was it you taught the Japanese? And he said, uh, this was now 1979, and, and this answer now is a cliche, but it was totally original then. No one had ever mm-hmm. said it. And he looked at me and said, I taught the Japanese to work smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. Ah, I understood that, finally. So uh, I called the uh, MDC office in Tokyo, and they said that next to General MacArthur, uh, Dr. Deming was the most famous American. And that uh, every year they had this thing that was just as popular as the Academy Award presentations, the Oscar presentations were in America, which was called the Deming Prize. Mm-hmm. And they presented that to the best uh, uh, you know, worker who was practicing Deming's ideas. They had no idea of what Deming had taught. They didn't know anything. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't explain it. Well, when I called the president of NBC, who was working on the documentary with us, he said, ah, the oldest story in the world, a prophet ignored in his own homeland. <laughs> we'll put him in the documentary. <laughs> so we went forward and we did the uh, the documentary, which was called, eventually in the end, If Japan Can, Why Can't We? Right. And we interviewed Dr. Deming. And he, there was only, Dr. Deming was only in it for about 12 minutes. And he explained some of what he'd done. And he said, Americans want to copy the Japanese, but they don't even know what to copy. <laughs> and uh, so I had, uh, he, and Dr. Dr. Deming was not somebody who ever watched television. The only television he'd ever watched before was the moon landing. <laughs> so I called him up and I said, this uh, documentary is going to run on, in June of 1980. And so you better be prepared. You're going to hear from people. <laughs> well, he heard uh, what it, the documentary ran, and NBC had never had and not has had since anything so uh, successful. There were thousands and thousands of phone calls asking for trans- transcripts, mm-hmm. asking to learn mm-hmm. more. People called Dr. Deming's office. Uh, the Fortune 500, I used to say, lined up outside his basement door trying to find out what to copy from the Japanese. And that was the beginning of Dr. Deming's uh, being understood in America, I had uh, go- I couldn't believe that somebody who knew all this uh, wasn't known. He lived six miles from the White House, mm. and uh, nobody in Washington knew who he was. I went to the head of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and I said, "Hey, do you know a guy named uh, w-, w. Edwards Deming?" And he said, "Is he Joe Deming's son?" <laughs> I said, "Not unless Joe Deming is 112 years old." <laughs> and it turned out that no one in America knew anything about him except he was. It was a um, a question on the Foreign Service exam to become a Foreign Service officer. Hmm, interesting. 
and so um, then he began to do, uh, people began to call him, and then he went to Ford. Well, I really still didn't understand. I just thought he talked statistics, and I and, I and Lloyd Dobbins, who anchored it, we never really understood what his ideas were. We didn't really understand what he taught the Japanese. And uh, then after the um, it appeared on the air, uh, Dr. Deming took me and my husband out to dinner, and uh, my husband had the Smithsonian had sent him to Harvard Business School to bring modern management to the Smithsonian, which didn't work. And uh, he said, "That's not what they taught me at Harvard Business School." And Dr. Deming loved that. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> and in fact, in later times he would have him get up and say that at seminars. He'd like that people get up and say, "This is not what's taught at Harvard Business School." <laughs> so uh, what happened in the end was uh, we be- we began to see that. And my my husband kept saying, "This is really fantastic stuff. This is a really revolution in how to man in management. This is something Americans need to know." He he understood it. So we had a uh, we're, we had a television. We were thinking of starting a television production company, and um, I was doing things like the People of the Year with Bob Newhart, mm-hmm. uh, and I decided I would really rather do something a bit more serious. Uh, so we started a television production company to help Dr. Deming explain his ideas to the West. And then from that came the Deming Library, and then working with him, because it was, we didn't really know a lot, We, we won, after we did the Deming Library, uh, we were able finally, in making him simplify what he said, to come up with things that we could explain, like... Uh, he he used to go around talking about people not having profound knowledge, and what he meant it was people who some uh, of the other people like Crosby, uh, the other consultants, right. uh, who who hadn't had as much education as he had. And I would ask him what with profound knowledge was, and he would look at me like I was an idiot. And then finally I went to Schirkenbach and all of these other people who understood him, and I would say, What do you think profound knowledge is? What do you think? And then I would come back and I would say, Is this profound knowledge? And then eventually. Uh, he gave me six things for profound knowledge, and I then showed them to him on television saying this is profound knowledge. And he said, where did you get that? And I said, he gave me this list, and I gave him the list, and he said, I can do better than that. And mm-hmm. the next week he came back with the four things that were profound knowledge. So this was a way of trying to – and so we I've really spent the rest of my life trying to simplify uh, his ideas so that people can understand that – what it means to work smarter, not harder, and what it means to, um, in other words, the one of the, the stories that are really good. And you can interrupt me if you want, or I can. No, it's right. Is it all comes? A lot of it comes from his boy. The tragedy of all this is how America has turned its back on the things that made it successful. And Dr. Deming was smart enough to see them as he grew up and then he went and taught the Japanese and this is now the the East is learning these ideas plus their ideas and we are slipping backwards. In other words, um, when Dr. Deming was a boy on the Wyoming frontier, there was the Department of Agriculture, which Lincoln started during uh, the Civil War, had put a county agent in every county in America teaching the American farmer continual improvement of farming. Right. And and this led to America eventually becoming the leading producer of food and fiber in the world. But as we moved from the farm to the city 
to the factory, to the urban urban areas, and so on and so forth. We gave up continual improvement, and now in America, we don't practice continual improvement. We say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the East now, we've taught them, and Dr. Deming taught the Japanese to speak, to teaching continual improvement. He also realized, as he grew up on a boy in the Wyoming frontier, that the frontier had not been settled by competition. It has been settled by cooperation right. and community and people helping each other. In other words, if a farmer got sick, you went and helped him to harvest his crop. They were barn raisings. But when when the Americans moved over the a century over a century ago from the farms to the cities, that all that community was lost and that cooperation became competition. Yeah. And so two of the major things that Dr. Deming taught the Japanese in 1950 were continual improvement of people and processes and products, as well as cooperation. But they were very good in cooperation before. He got there, but he 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 made, he made them understand how how important that was. And then the, what's happened now, as we look back over the past, well, you know, he went there in '50. He himself did his 14 points in the 1970s by looking at the Japanese companies and comparing them with the American companies. Right. And so it's now it's it's 60, 70 years. And what really happened was that for the first time in history, there was a massive bringing together of Eastern and Western thought, and it's a much greater whole. And the East, under as, as Russell Acoff liked to say, uh, he would say the East is learning scientific thinking and analytical thinking much more quickly than the West is learning systems thinking mm. and systems for, for cooperation and seeing the big picture. Yeah. And the combination of the two is really a leap forward in, in in human consciousness. It's a new mindset, and this is why the East is doing so well, Asia is doing so well, and we are really not. Well, it's, and there's, um, I think, you know, a lot to follow up on from what you're just um, talking about there. So, um, Dr. Atul Gawande, who some of the listeners might be familiar with, I, I don't know if you if you know his work or writing, Claire. No, tell me. Uh, Atul Gawande is a surgeon in Boston, and he's written a number of books. He writes for the New Yorker. Oh, yes. And yes, he, yes, yes. He, I... Yeah, and he wrote a piece in 2009, and I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes, called um, Testing, Testing, where he, he talks about the early 1900s and the USDA and, and the, the scientific approach to improvement and what a shame it is that healthcare, you know, has has, has really never embraced that. But I think, like you said, this isn't, well understood. It's certain. I don't think it's taught at Harvard Business School or, or MIT or other places even even today. No, no, no it's 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 not. And the problem that we have is that you see, we are all one one thing that's kind of ironic is we are all kind of victims of our uh, our victims or prisoners of our culture and and don't know it. One of the things that as I, as I learned from Dr. Deming over the years was that I believed in certainty and I believed in control. Mm. And um, it's impossible. In other words, but what Dr. Deming's great, great gift was to teach people how to manage. In other words, we live, there's been more change in our lifetime than in all of history up until now. And we live in a rapidly changing, increasingly complex world. Yes. And Dr. Deming's ideas are the only ones that can teach you you can't control complexity and change and 
you, but you can, and you, and you can't get certainty from it, but you can manage outcomes if you use Dr. Deming's theories of how to manage complex social systems in a rapidly changing world. And that is the genius of what he taught. And it works in the family, it works with the individual, and it works with Ford Motor Company. Mm-hmm. You know, Malali today says that, um, which is really wonder, he says, I, it's, what saved me was Dr. Deming's continual improvement. We're reintroducing mm-hmm. it again here at Ford. We're bringing it up. This is how Ford has brought itself back. And you see, but it's, all of this is very, quite complex. The media, which is having, is becoming more and more shallow, more interested in profit and making, um, making money and, mm-hmm. and profit and, and having head, and entertainment and so on. Can't explain it. It isn't explain. It isn't easily explained in sound bites or headlines, and so no one is examining this. And there, there are and and a lot of people across the country are are, are practicing this. Uh, David Langford has introduced it in many many schools, and these schools are just vastly, vastly different than the regular schools which we have, which have all fallen behind other countries in the world. And there are some hospitals that have adopted it, and the. the uh, the hospitals, as you well know, have uh, you know cut costs and wiped out hospital acquired infections, and uh, the people who practice it love their work. Yeah, or at least some of the hospitals have. And and maybe we can talk a little bit about you know you, you were one of the first to share some of these success stories um, from applying systems thinking and, and and Toyota principles and Dr. Deming's lessons in healthcare. Um, uh, a DVD, mm-hmm. or it was it was a PBS special called um, PBS. Good, "Good News: How Hospitals Heal Themselves," and there was the book. Mm-hmm. Can Can you talk about that project and how that ties? Well, into Dr. that Demers project. Work? Well, that project is uh, is kind of really very sad. You would think that after it it started, that that uh, here are these there are about forty twenty I think forty hospitals in Pittsburgh and twenty across the Midwest who have cut costs by 50%, wiped out hospital-acquired infections, uh, and done all sorts of wonderful things. And they uh, and, and, and not many other people are, are following it. The recent Time magazine story shows how corrupt, in a sense, the pharmaceutical hospital uh, uh, part of our society is. And that people are, uh, don't seem to be... It, it's, what it, part of what the thing with the hospital, which I discovered when we did this book, was that you really need to have a mind that you can go to that's like a catwalk. And when you're in a catwalk, you can like see, if you are in an auto factory, you can see the whole production line, and then right. you, you understand it all, you see the interactions, and then you can see the places where you may need help or whatever, and you can see how they affect this. There are catwalks, and there are no catwalks in hospitals. Right. So it's very, very difficult to to change it. The prop, uh, the possi- the problem in in hospitals and much of America is is not well in, in hospitals. It's not medical knowledge, and it isn't the doctors. It's management, and yes. we have fallen down so badly on on management theory. I mean, you well know this. I mean, you look, you, you tell us how important lean is. You tell me how 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 how, how what do you think lean has done? I well, I think in some instances it's it's had um really great success in terms of uh, improving quality and safety and reducing waiting times you know dr richard shannon from who had mm-hmm. been in pittsburgh who he interviewed in in 
that yeah, he was uh, a- documentary uh, you know talks about the Toyota based approach and, and gives quite a lot of credit to that. And I, I think the um, Sisters of St. Mary organization did, yeah. did, did they not call it lean? Did they call it systems thinking? Was it more quality Deming based? It was definitely Deming. They, mm-hmm. they were, they did uh, Deming. Um, but um, I, you see um, with, with all of this, people, people just don't even understand the problem. You go back and you also see that even Toyota has not sometimes obeyed Dr. Deming. And uh, about two years ago, they mm-hmm. didn't pay attention to their customers, and they had a whole bunch of recalls. Yes. And uh, so what, all, what this is, in a sense, it is an attitude of uh, mind. It's, it's like um, Paul O'Neill says, it's seeing the world with new eyes. Right. And uh, you have to, uh, g- there's a couple of things that you have to give up. I mean, it's really, you have to change your mindset. This is, I'm, trying to write a book about a new mindset that will that'll help everybody and as I say it helps at home and it helps in the factory and it helps in government it would make for a much more peaceful calmer wonderful world and you see we have this world where now everyone is in contact there are every there are revolutions hither and yon and wars going on and no one is stopping and stepping back and saying does this way of thinking does this 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 is the past in other words, um, we are all lost in either our thinking. You know, mm-hmm. you go back to the Garden of Paradise where the tree of good and evil. And either or thinking, which is a very, very Western thing, is very limiting. If you really want to bring people together and have greater holes and greater outcomes, and especially in a, a rapidly changing complex world, you have to go from either or thinking to both and thinking to stop being so deftant where you just, this is good or this or bad. Yeah things are mixed and you see we are we we in the west are really um we're we're prisoners of either or thinking and yeah. we're also prisoners of competition and uh, and also and then we're prisoners of blaming right and 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 dr deming was always so fond of saying that you know 94 percent of the outputs of uh any system are come from the system. They don't mm-hmm. come from a lazy worker or a broken machine. Right. And we don't believe that. We always are running around looking for somebody. It's it's a world where you either are a winner or a loser, and that's not true. We're all a little bit of both. Well, and or lots of both. Yeah. Well, and you know, some of the things that you've talked about are, are things that I think we're talking about in the lean healthcare community. You know, the idea of you know we we don't know. You know, people try to copy. They think it's a shortcut. They think it's efficient. They don't know yeah. what to copy. So that That's and that right. includes healthcare companies going to Japan or going to Boeing for Alan Mulally's yeah. former company, or hospitals going to visit other hospitals. Um, the 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 best success stories are from the organizations that have started looking at not just their hospital, but I mean, we say health system to really start viewing that as a system between primary care and insurance and hospital medicine oh. and 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 the, and they're trying to change the culture to you know for example reduce blame and um, really try to um, not not blame people for systemic problems there are you know there, there's some progress being made but it's still uh, you know I think not widespread enough unfortunately no it's it just it's just little pieces uh, you know, as Dr. Deming say, would, went around saying a lot, how could they know, how could they know? But mm-hmm. then the other thing he said, which is 
really quite horrifying, but I have, I'm convinced it's true, he would always say, survival is optional. No one has to change. Yes. And we don't seem to understand this, and we won't step back. We have to see the world with new eyes, and we have to see the big picture. We have to see the system. And if, if we don't, we can't, you can't fix the system. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, I always, one of the things uh, I like to talk about is that you take something in the competition field, you take the Boston Celtics, and for years and years they were the number one team in the country, but they never had the highest score. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the reason was because they played well together, they were the best team, and they were greater than the sum of their parts. Yeah. But they didn't have the highest score who was most competitive. And you see, this is, it's, our life has changed so much. Again, as I say, more change in our lifetime than in all of history, thousands and thousands of years of history before us. And no one had ever, before Dr. Deming, and he didn't, certainly didn't know what he was doing at the time, he didn't intend to do it, ever brought together the analytical thinking of the West in which we take things in parts and see how good the parts are and so on and so forth, along with the systems thinking of the East, in which people see uh, a bigger picture and step back and uh, therefore were open when that day in 1950 when he told them to look at work as a system and think of it, you know, as a process that they do and that you have to have a vision. And you see, part of the problem is is that there has to, there has to be leadership for this. And even in Japan, the vision never left the factory. Japan right. government never used these ideas within the, within the, within the country well, or within the city. Well, and, and from what I've seen firsthand a little bit and heard secondhand, Japanese health care has, has not embraced it either. Probably not. No, no. It's it's a uh, it it was just those people who embraced it and were able to see work in a factory as a system, and they were the first. But you see, everything is a system. Your family is a system. Your you know your life is a system. Your marriage is right. a system. You're raising your children, and um, you have to have a vision. And that's 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 something that uh, we are very very short on. And then you can see what's happening here in the government, and then in uh, in, in in Washington. Uh, it, it used to be it was interesting. I when, before I met Dr. Deming, I covered the Washington politics and everything. Right. And people would be elected to Congress, and they would move to Washington, and they'd bring their family with them, and their children would go to school together, and their wives would join the Congressional Wives Club. And they got to know each other. And every night there was a party in Washington where people mm-hmm. ate and talked and saw each other. Now somebody's elected to Congress. They fly in on Tuesday mm-hmm. morning. They may sleep in their office and leave on Thursday. They don't know anybody else. They're back home raising money. So there's maybe one of the reasons we, we seem to not have any middle ground or, or cooperation, at least in recent years. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they're not there. They're not part of the Congress. Yeah. And, and, and you talk about the, the role of leadership. And I had a chance to interview Paul O'Neill a um, year and a half ago, and, and I asked him what was what was holding back healthcare safety improvement and quality improvement. And uh, he he didn't miss a beat. His answer right away was leadership. Lack of lack of leadership. And, yes, uh, a lack of leadership. But it also 
it's something part of what part of what's wrong with con- with the Congress and uh, and politics is people are not being a lack of political involvement. People aren't being involved in electing electing their congressmen. People are not being involved in government. They just sit and watch uh, television, yeah. <laughs> and they they are not involved. And and you have to be involved, and I have to be involved. And yes, you indeed you have to have leadership, but you have to everybody can go and stop having you know, either are thinking and stop blaming people and stop just living on on competition yeah. and uh, it uh, and stop just and, and start to think more exclusively, inclusively rather than exclusively. Right. And and, and try to have win win relationships rather than win lose relationships and have cooperation rather than competition. But, uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, a lot of this is, is we are, you know, victims of our uh, culture. Um, Frederick Winslow Taylor helped us greatly at one point to organize. But what happened is he organized, he, he, the men on the, the people on the production line were just, you know, they, nobody wanted their brains or their advice. Right. And and now you need everybody involved in it. I can remember uh, Acoff telling this wonderful story of going to, I think it was Alcoa, and somebody had come up with an idea that was going to save, uh, you know, $500,000 a year. And after they all celebrated it, Acoff went to the man who was a production worker and said, well, how long have you known about the suggestion you just made? And he said, 10 years. Mm. He said, why didn't you ever say anything about it? He said, no one ever asked me. <laughs> and uh, so... There is this thing that it has, we have to bring other people in and we, as I say, we have to cooperate and we have to, uh, to, we've all got to become systems thinkers. We've all got to see systems and, and understand how systems work, which is, you know, it's a big thing. Nobody even really talked about this at all 50 years ago. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like there's, you know, a bit of a resurgence today. You know, I, I was just at, the Society for Health Systems Conference, and, and as usual, there's a lot of talk about lean, but there were you know two presentations that were based on Dr. Deming's work from people who had uh, you know worked directly with him in one way mm-hmm. or another. Um, you know, the, the Deming Institute seems to have some new energy. There's uh, a new book yeah. they published. Um, I think I think it was called The Essential Deming, and so I I, I hope a lot of these ideas um, you know kind of get back into the discussion about how do we lead organizations, how do we improve quality, how do we fix our country, or at least bring things forward, our country and our world together in, in a positive way. I think there are still, when people get first exposed to Dr. Deming, you know, it, it, it seems very fresh to people, and I think there's a certain timeless quality about it, uh, thankfully. You mean of Dr. Deming's ideas? Of, of Dr. Deming's work and his books. Oh, yeah, well, his, yeah. his, his ideas are the solution if we're going to go forward. We have to transform our thinking. We have to transform it. We have to see differently. We have to see the big, the, we have to see systems because yeah. that's how our life is. We have to see, you know, we, we now are, we're, we now have no idea of, of how to help other countries convert to live differently. There are people all over the world who are they're starving. There's, you know, we we are consumed by our consumption mentality in one sense, and uh, we we've got to uh, have a vision so that 
and, and we're going to be bitten by this. In other words, we're, we're, we will not be able to uh, go on and live as we have been living. And, uh, it's, and so we, we've got to work at transforming ourselves, correcting our educational system, and uh, so on. It's very, very difficult. I was talking recently to Herb Streiner, uh, the former head at AU who originally sent me to Deming. And he talked about how difficult it is for Americans to change. And this is really, I was moved by this, because America has always had such fantastic natural resources. And so they don't, they've never been like, say, or Japan where there's no arable land and so on and so forth. So therefore, it's very, very difficult for Americans to uh, do anything that's slightly painful or change if they don't have to. And that's very sad. Well, and as I say, it's all a transformation of how we see and the world and, and the, even just this difference between either-or thinking. If you only see an either-or world, then it's, you know, what can I say? Hello? Yep. No, I'm still, yeah, I'm still right. here. So. Yeah. Um, uh, the phone beat died. I guess somebody was trying to get it, yeah. but don't worry. But um, anyway... Uh, is you know, the question the 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 duty the it seems to me the task is to get the attention of people to try and change one of the things in, in my writing I was writing about James Watt who when he was a little boy in I think 1745 was staring at his mother's tea kettle while it was boiling and he saw the steam lift the top of the kettle well no one could ever have imagined the change that would come about as a result of that, which was he eventually invented the steam mm-hmm. engine, mm-hmm. eventually invented the, um, all of which led to industrialization, capitalism, and the world, much of the world in which we live in today. And we now have, we're undergoing another fantastic change, and we have to think differently and live differently and manage our lives differently and manage our world. And uh, that's what the problem is. We have to transform our worldview and and break out of our you know our cultural consciousness which it doesn't work anymore yeah. they always don't work and that's why you have, need a vision a leader with vision well and and I think you know dr. Deming um, provides to this day a lot of that vision um, you know Claire um, you, you you and your husband, and uh, the the team of people that you've worked with over the last you know thirty plus years, um, yeah. I think deserve a lot of credit for helping share those ideas and bringing it alive for people. I still love watching uh, the video of Dr. Deming himself, and uh, it's it's a treat to be able to talk with you today, um, you know about about your work with him and um, you know what you're continuing to do to this day to keep moving uh, these ideas out into uh, out into the conversation. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you, and you have certainly you're certainly carrying the ball forward, and we've got to find a way that we can make people hear us. And the sad part about all of this is, is that the media has just starting in the 1980s. It used to be that with just the three networks, they had to do public service in order to keep their license. The news divisions were not profit centers. That's why we NBC made If Japan Can, Why Can't We? Right. Because it was public service. 
And now that's been shown all over the world, and someone has even compared it. I think the Washington Times they said it was the second most influential documentary after uh, one Lanny Raffenstahl did on Hitler. <laughs> so, you know, as yeah. for what changing the world. But, uh, no, we have to somehow get people's attention and get their I know I, I do believe that people have goodwill. I just don't mm-hmm. think they understand that what what the rapid change has meant in the way we have to see the world and manage it. Yeah. Well, there's there's that environment and and maybe a thought to end on. You know, I think of a lot of quotes from Dr. Deming, but one is the idea that you know man created this management system and this style of management, so we're we're able to change it. And I, I hope people take that to heart. Oh, yeah, no, we can change it. We're still in charge, but we have to uh, do that. Oh, well, uh, I've really enjoyed our yeah. conversation. Um, so, Claire, thanks again for um, being our guest here on the podcast today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for calling. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.